0: question, who can find hope in Christ? What do you think about that? Who can find hope in Christ? Is anyone beyond the outstretched arm of God who cannot be saved? Is anyone? I want you to be able to reconcile that answer and get it and know it. Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This means that anyone can find hope. Jesus Christ. Anyone. Doesn't matter what the past, what the baggage, what anything else. Anyone can find hope in Jesus Christ. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. We call it the gospel. The gospel. The hope that we can have our sins forgiven and that we can be reconciled to God. That means no more condemnation. That means no more shame. And not only that, not only are our sins forgiven, But we're also given the righteousness of Christ and filled with His Spirit. It means we're we're born again. We're born of His Spirit. We're creations that are new in Christ. This is the glorious gospel, and it goes out to everyone. There's no one that God cannot save. So here is the question, the main question of the morning. How much does the gospel cost? Got some varied answers now, not as emphatic when I first said, is there anybody that cannot be saved? You all said, of course not. But now I ask you the real question we'll look at this morning. How much does the gospel cost? And then some of us slow down and we started thinking about it. Well, let's start with this. It's free, right? Okay, all right, got you thinking this morning. It's definitely free, but it came at a great cost. And it comes at a great cost. But it's definitely free. You didn't get a, an offering pan passed around so you could say, I'm going to buy some salvation today. I, I need to give a little money so I can get a little forgiveness today. That's not how that works. It's completely free. But it comes at A great cost. This morning, we're going to look at that cost from two different angles. Two different angles this morning. One is, what did it cost Christ? What did it cost Christ? But the flip side of that is, what does it cost his followers? There's two sides to this coin. So this morning, if you're taking notes, the message, the title of the message this morning is The Cost of Christ. Again, having two different angles. What did it cost Christ? And what does it cost his followers? And we're going to pick up in the text as we've been going through the Gospel of John together. And as some of you might remember, it was, as we would call it, Palm Sunday. People came out, laid palm branches for Jesus, hailing him as the king. And he's riding on the colt, or, or the, excuse me, the young donkey, as we should put it. And he's coming out humble as the king of Israel. And the people are screaming, Hosanna, shouting, Hosanna, save now. And the mindset of them was, we are under the Roman oppression, free us from them. Here is our coming king, free us. And then we don't know how much time goes by, but this is the week where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's coming to give his life as a ransom for many. He's coming to go to the cross. This is the final time he's going to go, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you'd open up your Bible to John chapter 12, we will continue reading in John chapter 12. Starting in verse 20, we're going to go through 26 this morning. And I'll read starting in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Look at me with verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that you would impress your truth upon our hearts and our minds, and that you'd put us into action. Father, may the word... From the pages of our bible being planted firmly planted and firmly rooted within us that we would be doers of it and we pray these things in jesus name amen so the first thing we see is for whatever reason now i i wasn't with john when he wrote this i couldn't ask him the question but he puts this quick blurb in that greeks came to him so who had he been speaking to before all the jews and now he talks about there are those of the Gentiles that would come and seek. Now, they were those who were also, we would call them God-fearers. They were going up to worship in Jerusalem. But they came, and what do they want to see? We want to see Jesus. I heard of one preacher that behind his pulpit, that verse was labeled right in front of his pulpit. We want to see Jesus. Because when you come and gather together, guess who you should hear about? You should see Jesus shouldn't be what the pastor has to say. It shouldn't be his agenda. It should be God revealing his son, Christ, through the scriptures, that we would see Jesus. So here we have Greeks. They're coming. We have no idea how much time has gone by, but they've come, and they inquire of Jesus. Now, we've got to stop and ask ourselves, what do you think they want to see him for? Why are they coming inquiring, we want to see Jesus? Could be they've heard the miracles. Maybe they want to interview We've got to ask him some questions. We want to know if he's, he's the one who has come. What is interesting is as we transition, the way Jesus responds, Jesus just gives them an answer. He tells them what he wants them to hear. And it's interesting as we go through this this morning, we're going to see the first thing he talks about is a cost. And he's going to talk about the cost of himself, of what it cost him. So if you're taking notes this morning, our first point this morning is the cost for Christ. The cost for Christ. And I know many of us, if I asked you this morning, what did it cost Christ? Most of you would say his life. But do you know he's still living? So let's refine that a little better. What did it cost Christ? And we're going to look at that and unpack it this morning. But the first thing that we're looking at in the cost for Christ is verses 23 and 24. And look at verse 23 with me. It says, Jesus answered them. They come, they want to see Jesus, and Jesus comes, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've been with us through the study of John, you know that Jesus said over and over again, my time has not yet come. Over and over and over again. This time he says what? He says, the hour has come. It's here. We can trace back to John chapter 2, verse 4. Is that one of the first miracles? He says, "My hour has not yet come." John chapter 7 verse 6. He says, "My time has not yet come." John chapter 7 verse 8. He said, "My time has not yet fully come." Again, John chapter 7 verse 30, it says, "His hour had not yet come." Do you remember when he was doing these miracles, people wanted to arrest him? And it says somehow he just miraculously slipped out. Why? Cuz his time had not yet come. Again, in John chapter 8, verse 20, his hour had not yet come. This is significant. The Greeks come unto him, and Jesus announces to them in verse 23 of John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, in the minds of the Jews, they would have said, great, this means we're going to be delivered. The time has come. The king is here. But what about these god about those who would have known and studied the scriptures, what are they hearing? What are they thinking? Look, if you see the visual, the crowd had just come out, put palm branches for him, saying, "Hosanna! Hosanna! Save now! Save now!" And now Jesus talks about the hour has come. Is that hour to free them from the Roman oppression? He's got a plan. He definitely came with a plan. He came on mission. But his plan was not about that kingdom right there. It was about an eternal kingdom. It was a much better plan. A kingdom that would come at a great cost to him. So the first sub-point, point number one, is the cost of coming to earth. Now, we've talked about it before. Was Jesus a created person? Quick answer there was good. No. We know from the very beginning of John's gospel that he's always existed. From the beginning, he was with God. He was God, okay? So he's not a created being, but there's a cost of him actually coming to earth. What changed with him coming to earth? Anybody know? Yeah, he had to take on flesh. He had to take on flesh to come and dwell among us. Well, guess what? We're also in a fallen world. Anybody experience that? Nobody, you guys? No no one experiences the fallen world around us? I don't even need to turn on the news. I need to walk outside the doors. Even within a church, there could be division. There could be strife and tension. There shouldn't be, but there could be. But we're in a fallen world. Jesus coming to earth demonstrates complete humility. The cost is complete humility. And let's unpack that in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who though he was in the form of God... Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we live on the planet Earth, and Earth is really big to us. It's like if you've ever flown around the earth, you're like, I went all the way to the other side of the planet. But it's so small in all of God's creation. Jesus spoke all of that into existence. He created all of that. And yet he humbles himself to come down with us here. Now, some of you know a lot about astronomy and seeing all that's out there beyond us. He came upon us. He came to us, took on flesh, which means there are other things about having flesh. He has to experience all of the fallen nature. One who once had authority over all now submits himself to come as a servant. The king of the universe comes as a servant of all. The cost of Christ to come to live on earth. This is our our second part. The cost of living on earth. What does it mean that he lived on earth? What is that cost for him to live? ask you this. As a Christian who desires to please God, is there temptation all around you? I only got half of you. The rest of you know? There's no temptation around you? Have you ever had a thought that you thought, ooh, that's probably not pleasing to God? Has anything ever flown out of your mouth? You went, whoa, that's not pleasing to God. Have you ever engaged in something that you went, that wasn't pleasing to God? Temptations all around. Jesus, we read in the scriptures, was tempted. The God of all creation, Himself taking on human flesh to be tempted. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, wait for it, yet without. for him he comes down takes on flesh dwells among us and if you remember when he comes out and starts his ministry what happens initially out in the wilderness to be tempted by satan that's the initial start and if you remember his defense he would say it is written that was his defense every time but he's been tempted in every way yet without sin perfectly holy perfectly righteous perfectly sinless why because he is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world had to be a perfect sacrifice in hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 we read for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted church have you struggled with temptation i'm not talking about giving into it i'm just talking about fighting the temptation jesus wasn't like i dream of genie and just wiggled his nose or batted his hair around or whatever he had to willingly submit to the Father and resist, to resist the temptation. We often think, well, well, you know, he, he's, he's truly God, and he's truly man. And as truly man, he was able to feel and experience what you've experienced, and yet never succumbed, never fell into sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Interestingly enough, we read from Hebrews, that's how, as he matured in his life, He learned obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We're talking about temptation. Resisting the things of this world. Resisting when when Satan says, Look out, look at all that stuff. You could have it on the flesh of of man. That looks good. But the reality of who he is is God. Get behind me, Satan. Nothing there. But he had to resist. And he learned obedience through suffering as one who has been tempted in every way yet did not sin. There's a point to that also, that because he did not sin, he would fulfill the law of God. He would fulfill, and you go, well, what's the big deal that he fulfilled the law of God? Well, remember, he came as a perfect substitute for you and me. Think about a substitute, someone in your place. So as Christ fulfilled the law, did not sin, he did it. In the believer's place. Fulfilled the law of God. Every aspect of it. Think about this. If Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins, we still wouldn't merit heaven. We would have no righteousness to merit heaven. We would just have no, like in a checking account, you'd have no negative balance. Forgiveness of sins brings you back to zero. But he had to fulfill the law on our part, so we would have Something to gain, some righteousness. So he came and he fulfilled the law on our part. So he had to live in perfect obedience. And he earned that righteousness for us. Theologians refer to this as active obedience. He actively submitted to the will of God, he actively resisted sin, he actively walked holy before God. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Do you know who that's speaking of? Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. you know who that speaks of? Christ. So I've heard people argue, Pastor, it's not fair about this original sin that's in Adam. I mean, that's not my fault, like we would have been perfect. That's Adam's fault. Well, it's also not fair that Christ came and gave his life which is a much greater offering because the reality is, if it hadn't been Adam, who's next? Who's next in line? So Jesus came to live on earth. He had to suffer as he was on earth, not just we always think of the cross, but in temptation. But not only that, but also in rejection. How many enjoy being rejected? Like you put yourself out there to people, and they just completely deny you. Nobody likes it, right? No one says, hey, put me up for being rejected by everybody. But Christ came knowing this. The Scriptures foretold this. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, hundreds of years before Christ came to earth, it was foretold that he would be despised and rejected by men. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus, who came to earth to give his life, to humble himself so that he could die in our place, also live in our place, what's rejected by men. We've seen it in this Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus speaking, and he's telling them what's required of them. And after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They fled. They couldn't handle his teaching. And they disappeared. And then as This week progresses where he's going towards the cross, going towards being crucified. He's got other followers following him. But once he gets arrested, what? The king is arrested? Well, there goes us being freed from the Roman oppression. And what happens? We read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, but all this has taken place. The scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. These are the people that were closest. I get it. Unbelievers would reject him. But what about those that closest to him? Those he invested his life in, they also turned and walked away. Jesus suffered through temptation. Jesus suffered through uh, rejection. But he also, there was some other suffering many of us know about. The cost, this is the third point of our our, our sub-point, the cost of dying on earth. The cost of dying on earth. This is actually the real suffering. So you've seen pictures of of crucifixion, people hanging on a cross. Theologians call this the passive obedience. It means as active obedience, he willingly submitted himself to things. Here, it was done unto him. He wasn't pursuing holiness in this case. He was unto him giving himself to be slaughtered as the Lamb of God. Do you think as Jesus headed towards the cross, his mind was—I mean, remember—truly man, truly God. I think his mind was perfectly clear of what was happening ahead, as far as emotion. I Think he's like, "Oh, no big deal. All this is about to happen to me. No big deal. I mean, I know the plan that's set out for me. It's, it's not a big deal. Absolutely not. Emotion was, was huge." In Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, we see some of this suffering that went on within him when he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. You ever been upset internally? You ever been overwhelmed with emotion? How does that describe it? Even to the point of death. So what was it? Was it the impending crucifixion that he was just concerned about the pain of the crucifixion? And if you know anything about the crucifixion, it is a horrid way to die. You know, we talk about torture. That's beyond torture. To put somebody and stretch them out and nail them and put their feet together and nail it would stretch out the capacity for their lungs so they couldn't breathe. So in order to breathe, they would have to push up on their feet to get a breath and then down. Well, how do you think it feels to push up on feet that have a nail going through them? And that's why those who would go and stay on that cross and continue to push and suffer in agony, the Romans eventually would come out and break their legs. Why? Because now they can't push up anymore, and now they suffocate. They can't do it. They can't push up. They can't get a breath, and they suffocate. Was that what Jesus was thinking about, do you think? As he was going, he was agonizing? I mean, I surely would be thinking of that. (laughs) If I knew that was what was going to happen, I'd be like, oh, man, I don't like pain. To me, that seems like one of the worst things that could possibly happen to somebody. But there was something much greater that was about to happen to Christ. That that physical pain of hanging there, of being suffocated, was nothing compared to the reality of what the true cost was. It was nothing. Jesus, being on that cross... He would cry out. We read it in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. It says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lemon sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What has just happened? What has just happened? If you don't catch what just happened, if you think that Jesus was just lonely on the cross, and he's crying out to God, you completely missed the cost of the cross. At that point, the sin of the world has been poured out upon him. And when the sin comes upon him, the Father can no longer look upon sin. For the first time in all eternity, there's been separation between the Son and the Father. Never experienced before. And Jesus feels the weight of it. The weight of my sin, the weight of your sin. And he would say, God, well, where have you gone? He's never experienced that before. That was the wait. And why did that take place? Because we can never pay back for our sins. We can never, look, if if there's a religion or a a certain cult that tells you, you know what, just do enough good works and God will accept you. Understand this, it can't work that way. We can't earn or deserve heaven. Heaven. There had to be someone else to die in our place who would take on the full wrath of God. God says he will by no means excuse the guilty. Somebody had to pay the penalty. And for many, it's themselves. Ezekiel chapter 18 says, the soul that sins shall surely die. But here we have the gospel message that Christ came to earth to suffer and to pay the penalty of all of our sins, that the penalty, the wrath of God that should be poured out upon us was poured out upon Christ. An amazing thing that happened on this cross. The word is called the propitiation. means he completely satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the penalty in full. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He, being Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who is beyond the outstretched arm of God? Nobody. The offer of Christ goes out to all. That Christ would come and pay the penalty. That Christ came and he suffered. Christ came and he lived in our place and died in our place. But it wasn't cheap. There was a great cost to it. No, we have taken the gospel church and we've made it this simple little thing and put no weight on it anymore. It's this simple idea of oh, don't worry, you've sinned, Jesus died, he'll take it away, and you're good. Go, be free. There's a lot more to it than that. For Christ, it cost him so much. But what about for those who would say, yes, I want to come to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know all this that we're speaking of, that he's done for me. Well, guess what? There's a cost to that as well. Now, to come to Jesus, that's free. You come freely to Jesus. But what's the transaction and what's going on? Jesus makes it very clear. When these Greeks come up to him and say, we want to see Jesus, Jesus speaks to them. Look at verse 25 with me. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And we need to understand what he's saying, because some of us, because of circumstances or or situations in life, we go, man, I just hate this. I hate this part of life, or I hate that I have no hair, or, well, maybe only a couple of us in here. Um, But we put in some type of little piece of the things that we hate. However, we might still feed us things that taste good. We still try to cool off when it's hot warm up when it's cold, we still take care of the body because we do love this life. <laughs> so there might be little things that we don't care for. Jesus is saying, whoever loves this life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he speaking of? Is he speaking of that we just need to go around and like kick a rock around and go, I hate me, I hate me, I hate me? Is that what he's saying? He's talking about the love of this world and the things of this world. If that is our pursuit in life, we're going to miss eternity. He said, but if we renounce all that and enjoy just him, we'll enjoy him for all eternity. So again, this point is the cost for his followers. First thing we're looking at is the cost of renouncing all. What does it mean to renounce all? I like what John MacArthur said on this. He said, though it may not be required, being willing to, To give up everything to follow Christ is what separates true disciples from false professors. Not professor like a teacher, but someone who would say with their mouth that I'm a Christian. The difference. The willingness is, look, it's not required of all. We know of one young man that came up to Jesus and Jesus told him, hey, go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. But he didn't say that to everybody. But it's a willingness. Am I willing to forsake all and renounce all so I could have Christ? Or is it Christ is here, and everything else is here, and they're about equal to me. Because then I don't get it. Christ should be everything. And in comparison, the world should be nothing in comparison. The things of this world. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, and I'll add 33 on it. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, in our text in John, Jesus talked about hating the world. Now he's talking about hating brother and sister and everybody. Man, isn't he like a guy of just hatred? What a mean guy. What does he mean by that word? It's so important because here's where people get up and go, Oh, forget, it. this guy's crazy. I don't know what he's talking about. What does he mean to hate them? It's a comparison that Christ would be so high, he would be pursued so strongly, he would be valued so greatly that everything else in life looks like you even hate those things because he's pursued so much, he's treasured so much. It's not that you actually despise your brother and sister and father and everybody. It's that you chase after Christ. He's first. He is the priority. Jesus says, look, everything around you, nothing should compare to having Christ. Nothing. He puts it in a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 46. He says like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered it up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field treasure of christ that he would be everything he's worth everything that everything else does not compare but him and he says again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it speaking of the greatest treasure of christ that everything else does not compare do you know this Christ? Is he that treasure? Because that's the cost for those who know him and follow him, that he is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest pursuit. Jesus would say this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's what he said in John chapter 12. He said, if, if you'd hate this life, if you'd lose it, meaning this is not what I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing my Jesus. I'm pursuing his kingdom. Now, here's the interesting thing. Depending on what church or what outreach you go to, there could be the gospel that goes forward says this, raise your hand if you want Jesus. People, some raise their hand. They go, let me explain what that means. If you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Foolish not to raise your hand at that point. And they say, just do this, ask him to forgive you, ask him to come into your heart, and you're good to go. That's really what happens. And it happens at a lot of places. And there is no cost of discipleship. They don't understand they're supposed to turn from their life and turn to Christ, to turn from their pursuit and turn to him. The word is called repent. To turn. Now The gospel's free. We come unto Christ. But it's our entire life that comes unto Christ. Some of us here would profess Christ, and we say, but our life is so tragic. Our life does not look like one who would live in Christ. Our life does not look like what a Christian should look like. Why? Because you haven't counted the cost. You haven't counted the cost. I love the way Paul the Apostle sees this. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul the Apostle says, indeed, I count everything. Everything as loss because it's surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is not on the screen It is Philippians chapter three, verses eight and nine. Paul says, I count everything else as garbage doesn't compare to knowing Christ, that I would be able to know Christ and his suffering, that I would be able to know the power of his resurrection. There's a cost to turn from everything else, to pursue Christ. There's also, as we look at the cost for those who follow Christ, we also see there's a cost of serving Christ. The cost of serving Christ. This is a word that's not popular in churches. I'll give it to you, one word obedience. Obedience. Because prior to Christ, and prior to being born of the Spirit of God, the pursuit was all about me. The pursuit was all about you. But now being filled with God's Spirit, the pursuit should be Christ. And if He is Lord, if He is King, then I do what He says. That's called obedience. You know, it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, and by God's grace, we will get there one day, but in chapter 14 we see three times Jesus talk about obedience to him as a demonstration of love to him. In John chapter 14 starting in verse 15, Jesus says, "Look, if you love me, you'll keep my commands." Now wait a minute. I'm looking around and for the most part we're just one believing church in here, and I would say, "Do you love Jesus?" And most of us say, "Of course I love Jesus." By what definition? His definition is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or is it, well, I love, look, I love pizza, I love chips and salsa. I don't love those things like I love Jesus. We use that word so freely. Jesus says, if you sincerely and genuinely love me, you will keep my commandments. That's one time, John 14, 15. A handful of verses later, John 14, verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Do that again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's The second time in a handful of verses. Third time, John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus speaking again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The sending of the Spirit. All of that is saying, if Jesus is Lord, which means master, if you have been radically changed by the Spirit of God, the pursuit is Christ, and the pursuit is one of obedience to Christ. Now, church, before I get up on my high horse and say I could do this per- perfectly, I can't. I stumble and I fall and I sin. There are thoughts that come to mind that I'm like, oh, my Lord, forgive what I just thought of. Or a time that I, I get short with my wife and I'm like, Lord, forgive me for... The way i've just spoken to my wife but my pursuit is perfection there's never an excuse for sin we can never say well the only reason i sinned against them is because they made me oh you laugh if you're married in here or in a relationship i'm sure you used that one before i would not have slammed the door if you had not fill in the blank really like somehow you're out of control and you can't control that which is hilarious because on the way to church, some of you married couples could be arguing and bickering, and then you walk into church like, hey, how you doing? God bless you. Great to see you. Well, you just controlled it. So we are able to, but we choose not to. But the cost of Christ, or of the cost of following Christ, is that we choose to obey him, to surrender to him as Lord. In the Gospel of John, we studied this before in chapter 3, in verse 36. We read, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's easy. That's the gospel. Believe in the Son, and you have eternal life. But he qualifies what that means. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. What does that mean? It means if there's genuine belief, that genuine belief produces obedience, at least a pattern, a a lifestyle of obedience. It's not perfection, but that's the goal. That's the aim. But if it's a professional, I believe, but there is no obeying Jesus. you're not genuine believer the wrath of god is still coming upon you what a warning third thing we see about the cost for those who follow him is the cost of following christ so we have serving him and following is closely tied in but it's another thing that jesus said is to follow me how do we follow christ what does that mean to follow christ one thing is to be identified with christ many of us have a hard time understanding our identity in christ have you heard the, the saying, in Christ? Someone say, I'm in Christ. Paul the Apostle say, in Christ. What does that mean? It's an identity. It's no longer Robert who lives. It's now Christ who lives in me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's he saying? He's saying there's been an identity change. Complete change. You want to talk about identity crisis? This is one went from one person all the way over to another person who is perfection. I'm now in Christ. I'm now in Christ. I'm no longer living for Robert. I'm living for Christ. It's a complete change. The believer must live in their identity in Christ. Oftentimes, I don't get too many original thoughts, but this one came to mind. Those, so that's a true statement. Those Who think much of themselves, think little of Christ. Those who think much of Christ, think little of themselves. Chew on that for a second. Because when I am at the center of the universe, when life is about me, Christ is really small in my life. But when Christ is at the center of my life, I am way down here and I'm just falling along. So do you think much of Christ or do you think much of yourself? Because that's going to be your response to Christ. We're to think much of him. That was his whole explanation of in everything else, it should be as in a comparison as though you hated everything else. It doesn't mean you're mean and evil towards those things. It means you love him so much that in comparison, it would be as though you hated those things. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again that, you know, some of us make a list of my priorities in life. Top priority, God. That's a great answer, right? We should put that there. Number two, fill in the blank. could be family. could be whatever you want to put. Work, whatever you want to say. And we make this list of priorities. When Jesus is talking about being the treasure, of being the forefront, of hating everything comparison, it should be as though he is at the top, and then like a scroll rolled down, went down La Sierra, went all the way over the freeway, kept going, and then maybe somewhere there's number two. That's the comparison. It's not boom, 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 boom. It's Christ. All the way down to somewhere that picks up some other priorities. But He is the greatest treasure. So, what does the pursuit of Christ look like? What must a believer do? Here's the fun part. You ready? If it hasn't been fun already? Die to (gasps) self. Really? Isn't there a better way? (laughs) die to self, this does not mean suicide. It doesn't mean you give up your life and your breath. It means you die to your pursuits and your passions to put on Christ and pursue his, to die to self. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Pick up our cross, symbol of death. But this life's no longer about me, it's about him. And here's the fun part, church. When you choose to count the cost and say, I will pick up my cross, and I will follow Jesus, guess what the world's going to do? They're not going to cheer you on. They're going to attack you. And they're going to persecute you. So in order to follow Christ, we must endure the opposition of the world and not get discouraged when it happens. We need to understand it's going to happen. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. Did he say you might be hated? You will be for my name's sake. You start walking or obeying and following Christ, and those who are in darkness will hate you. And they'll treat you just like they treated Christ. So let's put this all together. The gospel is definitely free. The gospel is free. We are to come to Christ to receive Christ. But it definitely comes with a heavy cost. For Christ, he had to take on human flesh. He had to dwell among us where he would be tempted and where he would endure rejection and ultimately suffering. He lived a perfect life. Perfectly obedient to the Father. His perfection, his Fulfilling of the law is imputed to us. We are given, as believers, that righteousness of Christ. But he also willingly died. He laid his own life down as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And not only to lay it down, but to lay it down in the most excruciating manner. Crucifixion. That only the most vile criminals would die a death like that. That our innocent Savior would die this way. <laughs> but That wasn't the worst part. The worst part is on that cross, the sins of the world were poured upon him. That he would experience the first time separation from the Father. The weight of the wrath of God upon him. To pay it in our place. that would bring forgiveness of sins to all who would believe and trust in him. So while the gospel is free, definitely is not cheap. Definitely is not cheap. It costs Christ greatly. And while believing in him is free, it's not without a cost either. Followers of Christ must deny themselves. They must serve Christ and follow Christ in obedience. This is the new identity they have in Christ. They belong to him. They're a child of his. Church, the reality is a believer is not always going to feel up to it. You ever not feel like doing the right thing? Some of us are like, all the time, I don't feel like doing the right thing. And Jesus says, bless those who have cursed you? What? I'm going to smack those who curse me, right? Isn't that the natural reaction of the flesh? But to submit myself to him, to do his will instead of mine, I must die to self and to put on Christ, the identity that I am in Christ, I belong to him, that he is my greatest treasure. And if I must do all these other things, put these things behind, I've gained Christ, though. Nothing else compares. If I have to humble myself to the point of forgiving those who I think are not worthy of forgiveness, well, guess what? I'm not worthy of forgiveness either, and I've been forgiven. He is the greatest treasure. And for the believer, they abandon all for the sake of knowing Christ. Their pursuit now is holiness. It's to be like Jesus, to be like Christ. So while the gospel is free to believers, it's definitely not cheap. There's a weight, it costs followers their lives as well. Jesus says, Are you willing to forsake your life so that you might gain it? And that you might gain it for all eternity. Look, the exchange doesn't even compare. That we would hold on to the things here and now that we think are good, that we think are pleasurable, and forego eternity that is good and right and perfect? How foolish could we be? How foolish? Cost followers their lives. And though they might lose their life now, they will gain it for all eternity. That is the most glorious of exchanges. The call is to turn to Christ wholeheartedly. Do not be one who would profess, but not genuinely know him. Turn to one who would say, I've counted the cost. I understand the cost. I know that when I receive Christ, that that means my life begins to change. Not by my power, but his power in me. That I just submit myself to him. That you are Lord. You are king. You are master. Look, before Christ, you could have tried to change. And you could have failed a million times. And now you think, oh, I'm looking in the face of Christ, and if I come, I have to change. I've already tried that. I can't do it. And the answer is you can't do it, but he can. And when you come to him and you believe in him and you trust in him and he fills you with his spirit, it's him who works in you and through you for his good pleasure. It's that he would be exalted, that he would be glorified. Let's pray together. Father, this morning there definitely was no easy believism inside of the words of Christ. Christ made it clear that we're to come to him, to receive him, to trust in him, to follow him. But it comes at a cost, the greatest cost being unto him. In humility, in rejection, in temptation, in suffering and taking on the sins of the world. Father, to us who are simply told, repent and believe, there's also a cost. And perhaps a cost that so many here this morning have never weighed. And they look at their life and wonder, am I truly saved? Have I been changed? Have I been sealed by the Spirit of God? Am I a child of God? Knowing that today you once again say, come to Christ. Christ. That our hope and our trust is in Christ alone. And that we're to count the cost and know that what that means is turning from ourselves and turning to him and trusting in him. And that, God, you will do the work in us and through us for your good pleasure. That you will conform us into the image of Christ. Father, may there be no doubt in this place. May we surrender all. May we come to Christ. and May he be glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.